nice to see you all. Everyone happy and healthy? Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. And Ronnie, thank you for your uh, beanie wig. I look forward to wearing that in the next couple of weeks. Up in the bird where it's nice and cold, it'll just help a little bit. So, um, it's just a great story that I came across in preparing for Sunday morning this morning. Um, D.L. Moody, some of you may recognize the name, he was a great preacher going back, I don't know, late 1800s, an evangelist, and uh, there's actually a Bible college, he started a Bible college, and the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and named after him. But in, in one of his church services one Sunday, he, he had asked someone during the week to pray during the service, as you do from time to time. So the man got up at the appointed time and began to pray, and then continued to pray, and then went on praying, and he droned on and on for 10 minutes. Some of you have been to services like that where someone does just that. Finally, Mr. Moody, the preacher, um, the pastor of the church needed, knew he needed to do something because you just can't let this guy keep going on praying. And so he stood up and said, while our dear brother is finishing his prayer, let us all turn to him number 324 and sing. <laughs> it's one way to get someone to shut up. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a service like that where it just seems like the prayer drones on and on and on. I confess that I used to be expected to attend a prayer meeting at the Durban North Baptist Church many years ago when I was a youth pastor there. And that the prayer meetings happened on a Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock. And that little sideboard, you guys know that little side thing there by the kitchen. And, and the sun beats in through those windows. And they had a circle of somewhat comfy, I don't know if they still have them, those old green armchairs. So you kind of sink down into this chair on a Friday afternoon with the sun beating down, and then you're asked to close your eyes <laughs> as someone rambles on and on and on in this droning, soothing, hypnotic. <laughs> there were a number of times when I didn't actually fall asleep. And in fact, on the one Friday, the guy next to me nudged me and said, you're snoring. How about that? I know I'm a terrible pastor. Um, fun fact is this morning is that we're going to read what is apparently the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. I'm hoping that you don't fall asleep halfway through it. I'm also hoping that Kevin doesn't stand up halfway through and say, well, Chris is finishing this sin. Uh, but if you'd like to turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, I had debated reading it in bits, read and preach and read and preach, uh, but that becomes complicated for the guys in the back, uh, because there's a PowerPoint to go with this, and I'm, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Please, pay attention. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood in their places and confessed their sin and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were, 
read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and spend another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Yeshua, Barnum, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, what a name, <laughs> Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenaniah, um, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, and Sherebiah, Odiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up, praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all the starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything. And the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and, and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his one faithful to you. You made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gergeshites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the peoples of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the seas before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a blur of cloud, and by night with a blur of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commandments that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. You gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven. In their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land that you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine in the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manner from their mouths. And you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sinon, the king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land, and you subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. 
you handed the Canaanites over to them, along with the kings and the people of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile lands. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things. Wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in broad great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were oppressed, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law. But they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring people. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully, while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, our fathers, did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or to the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in a spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from your evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land that you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings that you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So you've just got to think, right, to last week if you were here, to think back to the happiness and the joy and to the donuts that you got to eat. Remember that? What am I on today? You should come to church more often if you went to last week because you never know what you might miss. Donuts. The feasting and the celebration and from that in chapter 8 to just a few days later in chapter 9. Fasting and mourning and sadness. Confession. Something a little more somber. And what we have in this prayer really is just a wonderful outline of the entire Old Testament. If you want to summarize what the Old Testament is about, here it is. There are seven parts to it. Each part adds something about the nature of God, of who God is. But we also see woven into this passage the response of the people to this great God. And you have to see above all else in this passage the unwavering and 
inexhaustible grace of God. <coughs> the unwavering and inexhaustible grace of God. If we see nothing else this morning, we must see this, that it is all of grace. And that it is all His work. Because of His inexhaustible and unwavering grace, you and I have hope. So the people have gathered, they've, they've had this celebration, they've come back a couple of weeks later, they've regathered, they're standing at the steps again, and the Levites are up on the steps in front of them, five, five or six or however many is on the one side, and the others on the other side, and there's a bit of a call and response going on, I think. There's, there's a group of the Levites who are crying out the praise of God, and the others who are crying out the confession of the sins of the people. And there's this echo going on. And there's this long prayer. Expressing some of who God is, some of what the people are, and everything of His grace. So let's just break down all the little bits and uh, highlight some of the things as we go. So the first thing we see in this passage is the story of creation. Right? Uh, we see the story of creation. God creates. Those first couple of verses goes it takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter one. The God who makes. The God who makes. The, the, the prayer starts at the beginning with, the, with God who is the source of all things, with God who is the source of life, the God who gives life to everything. And if you've got your Bibles up, just keep following along and you'll see there, what is the response of all of heaven to the God who makes all things? All of heaven worships Him. All of heaven worships this life-giving maker of all things. And that really should kind of set us up for the prayer that is to come, for what is to come in the rest of the prayer, that surely if the heavenly hosts pray and give thanks and worship this God who has made all things, then surely it should follow that all aspects of His creation, those who have received life from this life-giving maker, should also respond in worship. Surely all that has been created should be in all of Him. God made you. And we know that there's biology involved, but it is He that gives us life. The intricacies of the human body are just way beyond something that could happen by chance. The, the vast array of the stars and planets and the things that the quasars and the things that spin up there, the scientific laws that rule and govern this universe, those things simply cannot have happened by random chance. And so when you wake up early in the morning and watch the sunrise like I did this morning, you see the colors in the sky. What does that prompt in you? And when we look up and we see the stars, does that not prompt some sense of awe? Or when you, you look at a, a tiny newborn baby and the intricacy of what is created there, what should that prompt in us? And the story moves. Genesis 12, to the story of Abraham. And we, we discover in the next little section, uh, the God who, who calls, the God who chooses. Has the thing just frozen? It's not terribly important. It's just something for people to look at. The God who calls, the God who chooses. Those next few verses tell us that God went looking for Abraham. Abram, the, the idol worshipper, the, 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 the heathen idol idolater. And in that little section, you see it's all about God. You have kept your promise. You have been faithful. The, the God who calls, the God who chooses, is the 
covenant-keeping, righteous God. This God that we are called to worship has come for you and found you, just as he went and found Abraham. And he's called and chosen and appointed you and brought you out of darkness. And just like with Abraham, he has changed you. He changed Abraham's name from Abraham to Abraham. He has changed you and changed your name from a slave to a child of God. He's given you a new family name. And he has made a covenant with you. Because he is a righteous and covenant-keeping God who keeps his promises. He is the God who calls Verse 9, the story moves to the story of the Exodus, to, to the story of Egypt. And we see here then the God who sees. The God who sees. Remember the story of how the, the people find themselves in Egypt and they're slaves to Pharaoh. They're under the whip. And God sees their suffering. God saw the suffering of his people. I find that one of the more touching expressions of the nature of God in Scripture, that God sees us. That God is not blind to where we are and what we are and what we face, but that God sees us. He sees you. He sees your need. He sees your bondage. He sees you under the whip. He is not a blind God. He's not the blind God of chance. He's the God who sees. And having seen, he delivers his people. That's the story. He delivers his people. He leads them out of slavery. He leads them out of bondage. He leads them into freedom. So up to this point in the story, it's all been good, isn't it? God has created. Heavens worship him. God calls Abraham. God is this covenant-keeping God. God, um, God is the God who sees the suffering of his people. God sees and delivers. It's great. It's all kind of forward and moving upward and moving onward and you're like, well how can God's people respond other than by awe and worship and delight? It's wonderful. Verse 13. They leave Egypt and enter into the wilderness. And in the wilderness we encounter the God who gives. And He gives so much. He gives them a light by night. He gives them a cloud by day. He gives them food that just drops out of the sky. He gives them water that just comes out of a rock. Their clothes don't wear out. Two weeks ago, I went and bought new clothes. I got new pants. Very nice. Uh, because my other ones are beginning to develop holes in them. I knelt down in a pair of jeans last week and they split at the knee. Um, my socks have holes in them. They wear out. Greg got a new pair of shoes for his birthday. I was told it's the first new pair of running shoes since before you and Sue were married. So what, how long were those other ones lasting? 10 years, 12 years, something like that. It's time for a new pair. They wear out. But here these people walk around the desert for 40 years. They don't need to go buy new clothes. Now for some of us, that's wonderful. I don't have to go to the shop. I have to go wandering from shop to shop to look for a pair of pants that fit now cheap because that's that's my you know and I know that hurts others because some of you just want to shop all the time and you're hating this but God who provides God who has sustained God has given to his people but the two particular things that God gives to the people you gave them the law that 
is just and right and good. God, God gave his law to his people. And it is, it is a good law. It is a good law. It is a law that's given for flourishing and not meant to be for our harm. God's commands are not to injure us and to limit us, but that we may flourish as human beings. Like we said last week, that we are, we are formed and shaped and made by, by His Word. God gives us His law not to narrow us, not to hold us down. He gives us law so that we can, we can become fully human. He gives law so that our societies can function and function well with justice and righteousness. And isn't it funny that our society generally wants to say that the only way to flourish is if we cross these laws? That if, we, if we're able to live without restraint, then we'll be truly human? And yet we find, of course, that what happens is that when we, when we cast aside this law, we become increasingly like the animals. We become enslaved by our vices. Not only does He give us His good law, but He also gives us His good spirit. He gives us, he says, his spirit to instruct. The spirit of God given, even in the Old Testament, to instruct the people on how to live and how to live out this good law. We're not left to figure it out by ourselves. Jesus said, when I go, I will send the spirit and he will remind you of all these things. So you see that, that God is the God who gives and he gives good things to his people. And so again, out of all this, how do, how do the people then respond, right? How do they respond to a God who makes, who calls, who sees, and who gives? They become arrogant. Which is kind of a funny phrase to use. But it's the word that he used to describe what the Egyptians were like just a few verses earlier. And I think the point is that God's people are no different from the Egyptian oppressors. So here's what God's people do. They refuse to listen, they fail to remember, and they long to return to slavery. The God who makes, calls, sees, and gives has this response from the people. They refuse to listen. They will not hear that God's law is good. They will not be instructed by His good spirit. They fail to remember. They will not look back and see how God has worked, how God has delivered, how God has given, how God has supplied, how God has seen. And I think there's a difference between I forgot and I did not remember. Christchurch and Waterford have been very gracious to us. And they allow our band to go into the hall on a Thursday evening to rehearse, because we can't rehearse here. This week, we finished our rehearsal, I armed the alarm, slammed the gates, carried stuff out, drove off. Friday morning, I get a phone call from Dory at the top of seven to say, Chris, were you guys the last ones here last night? I'm like, yeah. He says, did you lock the door? to lock the door. There is a difference between I forgot and I deliberately chose not to remember. I think some people, I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't deliberately choose to not remember. I, I just simply forgot I'm getting old. It's 25th wedding anniversary, drawing me into a 50th birthday. You know, I forgot. Um, 
might slip my mind. But there are times when, if you're, if you're a student and you're writing an exam, you can't just say, I forgot. You can't just slip my mind. You've got to call it back to mind. You've got to actively remember. Like here's the people of God. They refuse to listen. They fail to remember. They will not call to mind the wonders of God. And so bizarrely, they long to go back to slavery. Oh, if only we could be eaten with whips again. Oh, if only I could have those chains, the gentle feel of chains around my wrists. It's funny how the people remembered the onions and the garlic and the leeks. I'm not sure why you would remember those things. But then not remember the labor and the whips and the oppression and the suffering and the lack of freedom. But are we any different? Do we fail to listen? Do we fail to remember? And so many of us limp back into slavery. We forget the whips and chains of our sin and remember only that for moments it was fun. And the expectation in reading this then is that surely God will just say, I'm done. I'm over it. I've given so much, I have done so much, I have created and seen and heard and, 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 and delivered, and you guys, I've turned your back, you've become stubborn and arrogant, surely God's just going to turn away, right? And yet halfway through verse 17, it says, but you are a forgiving God. He's not only the God who gives, but he's also the God who forgives. And so he does not desert them in the desert. And so the people enter into the promised land. They enter into the promised land and there we find the God who subdues. The God who conquers our enemies. The God who fights for us. And it's this whole thing of you gave them kingdoms, you brought them into this land, you subdued their enemies, you handed to them fortified cities. You gave them wealth they did not need to dig by themselves. You gave them established vineyards and olive groves. Did you love that bit where they took possession of houses that were filled with good things? This is our good God. This is what He does. He subdues our enemies and fills our lives with good things. And the result was, and I love this phrase at the end of verse 25, they reveled in your great goodness. When last did you revel in anything? When last did you revel in His great goodness? That idea of reveling, that idea of just soaking up and enjoying and loving, not just His goodness, but His great goodness to us. And I know that you probably didn't walk into a fully furnished home. You're not the ones who are going to benefit from that expropriation. But God has set you free from sin. He has brought you into His family. By His gospel, He has welcomed you into His home. That is full of good things. He has given you an inheritance that will not perish, spoil, or fade. God has been good to you. And how do people respond to the good God who gives good things? The God who subdued your enemies? They rebelled. 
They ignore his law. They kill the prophets. And so they enter into the cycle, right, where God hands them over to the oppressors, and the people cry out, and God delivers them, subdues their enemies again. And the cycle repeats. They ignore the law, they worship idols, God sends the oppressors, they cry out to God, and God delivers them and subdues their enemies. And yet this phrase, at the end of our Lord's Verse 28, I think. God delivers them time and time again. Over and over and over. And so, do you begin to get then the sense of God's unwavering and inexhaustible grace? Time after time, again and again, over and over and over, despite their rebellion. God, in compassion, delivers His people. Despite their sin, despite their idolatry, despite their rebellion. And listen carefully, right? This is us. This is you and me. In our rebellion, we turn our backs on His law. We ignore His good gifts. We forget His mercy. And as soon as life gets good, that's what happens here, as soon as they are at rest, we turn our backs on Him. Because who needs God? When you've got a margarita in one hand and you're lounging in a hammock, right? Who needs God then? And rest, which is the very sign and symbol of God's covenant blessing to His people, rest becomes the moment when the people turn away. It's when they're at rest that they go, oh, we don't need God. And again, you would think, surely God says, that's it, I'm done, I'm over. I've created, I've called, I've seen, I've given, I've subdued. And what do I get? Do I get worship? Do I get awe? Do I get love? No, I get ignored and forgotten. And what does God do? Time after time, again and again, in compassion, He forgives and delivers and rescues and redeems. And imagine that some of you feel like the Israelites here caught up in that endless cycle of sin. And you're thinking, God must surely be ready to give up on me. I might as well just abandon all hope and go back to Egypt. And God, in compassion, forgives and shows grace and mercy again and again, time after time, because His grace is inexhaustible. And the downward spiral continues. Because the kings arrive scene and the people are established in the land now and the people become again arrogant just like the Egyptians they sin against God's law even though it is, is this law that brings life they're stuck they refuse to listen just like the kids with fingers in their ears they will pay no attention even when God speaks through the prophets they ignore everything that he says. They deliberately ignore him. Earlier it was deliberately forgetting. Now it's deliberately ignore. Let's ignore him and hope he goes away. Sound like anyone you know? And if you're thinking of someone other than yourself, you're missing the point. And what do we find in this moment? We find the God who is patient. The God who is patient. And you kind of go, how patient does he need to be? I don't know how patient you are. I, I lack a certain amount of patience. I don't like waiting for things.
waiting in the queues. I'm always looking for the shortest queue, right? I know it's like to wait. Don't like waiting for stuff to arrive when they have ordered it. I want to know that it's got to come. I can't wait for three days. I need it there in two. I can't. Don't like to wait for stuff. I get impatient on the roads. Get impatient with that section just outside pick and pay in Hillcrest as you come around the corner. And there is always, always, always a taxi parked in that lane behind the road. Get impatient. And I hoot every time. In fact, I start hooting when I get to the traffic light coming up because I know. Despite all of this, where is it led to? We are saved. 
We are slaves to the Assyrians. We are slaves to our sin. We are slaves to our idols. We are slaves to our technology. We are slaves to our society. We are slaves to our culture. We are slaves to the voices in our head. We are in great distress. Amen. <laughs> As you review that long, long history, you go, well, where is the hope? What is the answer? And the answer is always this, the inexhaustible and unwavering grace of God. It is our only hope. He is our only source. It is all we have. And all I want you to do this morning is look up. Look up and see the grace of God. Does it seem as though once more you are enslaved? Does it feel as though once more the Assyrians have got you? Does it feel like once more you're in exile? Does it feel like once more you're in distress? This may not be the case for all of you. Some of you may be going, no, no, it's wonderful. I'm living in the promised land in time of rest and everything's great. But do you perhaps sometimes see yourself with your poor memory, your deliberate disobedience, your willful turning away, your deliberate ignoring and ignorance, your foolishness, your blindness to His goodness? And what solution is there to this? Well, try harder. Try harder to be gooder. Pray more. Give more money to the church. Be more intense and intentional in your worship of God and really, really feel the songs, right? And, and God will see, you know, the, the, the intensity in your intention and will go, yes, okay, you're trying, I'll give you another try. No! That's not what it is. The solution is and always has been throw yourself with abandon on His great mercy because His grace is without mercy. It cannot be used up. Do you see again this morning this God, who this God is? The God who has made and called you. The God who sees you in your distress. The God who gives and keeps giving goodness to you. The God who has subdued your enemies. The God who is patient with you. Who loves you. Abandon yourself to because His mercy is great and His steadfast love endures forever. When I get back in a couple of weeks' time, we'll read chapter 10. And chapter 10 is kind of disappointing because what happens is they've done this prayer and now they say, here's what we're going to do. And they lay out a new covenant. God, we promise we're going to be better. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to, I don't know what else they're going to do. We're just going to be obedient in life. We're not going to give our daughters in marriage to strangers. Uh, we're going to sell stuff on the Sabbath. We're going to keep your commands. We're not going to rob people. We'll keep the festivals. We'll do everything. We're going to be, you're going to see God. We're giving our best shot. And man, you'll be impressed when you come back in three months time because we're going to be better. And what's disappointing about that is that we get to chapter 13 of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is tearing out other people's hair. And he is punching